Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami just so you know, usually that's just the person who's giving the Dhamma talk who's reciting the three refuges at the beginning. But uh, but if you all want to join in giving the talk, <laughs> so it's usually it's just the uh, the person who's speaking is um, setting the intention to um, rather than be speaking from a uh, a, a personal or a, a, a self-centered perspective to be speaking on behalf of the triple gem. So that that's the uh, Spirit in which that uh, is um, uh, that can, that recitation is made. Uh, the theme for the afternoon uh, is what is mindfulness. So I thought this was a very uh, sort of useful and broad-ranging topic, particularly because mindfulness is becoming more and more part of the um, the English language and also part of the uh, the sort of psychological landscape. Uh, of this country and something that is having more and more of an influence and is being seen to be more uh, of more and more benefit in in this country uh, and around the world well, the uh, the concept of mindfulness was something that was completely foreign to me until I uh, uh, walked into a Buddhist monastery in northeast Thailand about 35 years ago uh, I'd not I'd not been uh, Particularly interested, or and certainly not, and certainly not a practicing Buddhist before I arrived in the monastery. And uh, I had a, a vague and broad interest in spirituality, but uh, I'd not studied any Buddhist literature. And I had one encounter with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher a couple of years before, but I had no real knowledge of Buddhism. I'd never read a Buddhist book before I walked into that uh, monastery, Wat Pa Nanachat, in, in northeast Thailand. Um, but within a, a very short period of time, I was very enthusiastic about Buddhism and about meditation and particularly about the uh, this quality of mindfulness because the, the monks there were making a, a big deal of this. This was something very important, very significant, and um, it seemed to be the, the linchpin of the whole thing. And you could see that uh, if uh, the, the, more, uh, the more mindful you are, the less you suffer. Seem to be the very simple uh, equation that uh, <clears throat> if you're not mindful, you suffer. If you are mi- if you are mindful, you don't. Therefore, um, put yourself into a situation and uh, uh, and develop as much mindfulness as you possibly can. It's one of those situations where, and even the Buddha corroborates this: more is better. So, when it comes to mindfulness, more is better. <laughs> So I was very enthusiastic about the idea of, <coughs> of mindfulness, but one of the things uh, also when considering this this title for the topic, I thought one of the the, the easiest ways of of, uh, of responding to that question, what is mindfulness? You can do it in a one-word answer, which is uh, the word misunderstood. You know, mindfulness is misunderstood because uh, we can interpret it in various different ways, and oftentimes we think of mindfulness. Uh, in a rather narrow or over-specific way. 
So uh, there I was at the, the monastery in Thailand, you know, being a Buddhist for three days. Yeah. Well, actually a week by then. I was really enthusiastic about mindfulness, thought this was the greatest thing. I thought, okay, I've got it all figured out. You know, if you're, if you're mindful, you don't suffer. If, you, uh, if you're not mindful, you do. Therefore, you know, as long as you're mindful all the time, then all your troubles will be over. Very simple. So uh, on this particular day, it was actually less than a week. It was about the fifth or sixth day that I'd been staying at the monastery. And uh, the uh, the monks and novices were out on the arms round in the early morning. And and so I, uh, as a, a layman, just been staying there. I uh, uh, was part of my job to help out sweeping up and, uh, and uh, tidying the place. And so I was in the, the monastery kitchen and I'd swept the, the, the concrete floor there. And so I thought, what else can I do to be helpful? I know what. The villagers come in every morning and they cook on they cook on these little um earthenware braziers uh and so there's there's no electricity in the, in those days there so they'd cook on these little earthenware braziers and i thought i know what i'll do i'll cut them some kindling so it'll be easy they can just come in and they can start their fires uh, very quickly um so i uh, got some uh, of the bits of firewood and a machete and uh, I started splitting some wood for them to make kin uh, to, for them to make their fires with some kindling. And I, I grew up on a farm, so I knew how to cut wood. And I've been doing this ever since I was a small child, and uh, without ever injuring myself. And uh, so I knew that uh, if you want to, you, to split a piece of wood, you, you, st you hold the piece of wood up on end, and then you you bring the the axe or the the, the blade down, and, and you split the wood and uh, kindling that way. But then I, uh, I was so enthusiastic about mindfulness, I, I had this thought, aha, now if I'm not very careful, I might bring the blade down with my right hand before I get my left hand out of the way. So I'll stand the stick up on its end, and then line up the knife, and then take my hand away, and then bring the blade down before the stick fell over. So I thought, I know what, uh, rather than bring my hand into my left hand into risk at all, why don't I think of another way of holding the stick upright? Oh, I know what. I'll hold it between my feet instead. <laughs> that way my hand will be completely protected. <laughs> Thinking this is a stroke of genius, uh, you can actually see this large scar on my, uh, <laughs> my foot and, my, uh, and I, I still can't move my, uh, my toe has never quite recovered from the, uh, the injury that I... I uh, lined the, the blade, uh, I, so I thought, mindfully up with the top of the stick uh, three times over, because of course I realized by that time Buddhists always do everything by threes, you know, Pudang Saranangam Chami, you know, and everything is done three times over. And so I lined the blade up three times, once, twice, and then on the third time brought the blade down with great vigor, it skidded off the top of the stick and went about an inch and a half into my foot. So my first thought was, you moron. <laughs> this large hole in my foot gushing blood all over the, the, uh, uh, over the, the, uh, the, the kitchen uh, floor. And so uh, then I, um, I hopped across the, the yard to, the, uh, to the, the main monastery building and sort of knocked on the door. And uh, there was one of the other monks, Ajahn Pasno, was also... Um, he stayed behind from Armstrong because he had a, a broken foot, so he, he was in plaster. And so I knocked on the door and said, uh, "Ajahn uh, Tanpasno, I've I, I've uh, I've hurt my foot." And so he he appeared and uh, saw this 
pool of blood expanding over the, uh, the, the concrete surround of the, the meeting hall and thought, and said, I think we better get that foot in the air. <laughs> so I lay down and got my, my foot uh, uh, up, uh, up in the air and then they took me off to the hospital, sewed me up. So that was my first lesson in what mindfulness isn't. <laughs> that was a, you know, a very clear um, message that I thought I was being mindful, but I, and I was paying attention, but I was completely clueless of the fact that I was putting my, my foot, my very tender <laughs> and cuttable foot right into, into the line of fire. So this is something that, uh, it was a very graphic lesson. So I now have a slightly lame right foot and a large scar that reminds me of what mindfulness isn't. Now when you see definitions of mindfulness, such as, and I copied these down, um, so um, the uh, Pali text, Society Dictionary uh, defines sati or mindfulness as memory, recognition, consciousness, intentness of mind, wakefulness of mind, alertness, lucidity, self-possession, and self-consciousness. It gives you, you know, some sort of a, uh, a range of, of concepts that it's, it's addressing or it's uh, saying that this is what sati or mindfulness is. And then the uh, definitions made by such um, leading figures in the field as uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who is the founder of the mindfulness-based stress, redu stress reduction programs. Um, and also this is a, uh, from the Oxford Center for Mindfulness. Uh, they define it as paying attention on purpose in the present moment with compassion, non-judgmentally, and with open-hearted curiosity. So um, those are all to do with, with paying attention, f focusing your mind on the subject. But uh, uh, one of the things that is being missed in that, yeah, because we can be paying attention, we can be focused on something, we can be intent, we can be non-judgmental and, and compassionate, but uh, there, there's an element that's being uh, missed there. And so when we use the word mindfulness uh, and, and we uh, say, looking beyond just that act of paying attention, but, also, but more looking towards uh, mindfulness in a more comprehensive or a, uh, uh, say, a, 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 an all-inclusive way, then there needs to be some other elements in there. We need to not just be paying attention, but there needs to be a, 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 say a, a breadth of vision or other qualities that are brought in there as well, because I was paying attention very closely. I wasn't, my mind wasn't wandering as I was bringing that knife down, but I was uh, paying attention, but I was not uh, using any kind of um, circumspection. I wasn't looking at the, the broader picture of sharp knife moving at speed <laughs> down towards soft foot. So there's a, a particular sutta, uh, teaching of the Buddha uh, called the cook, and the Buddha is using a, an example of a, of a cook working in the royal household uh, as a way to illustrate different kinds of, uh, of mindfulness. Said, so, you know, the first cook, who is um, uh, uh, who's not very uh, attentive, will work hard to, to cook food and present it to the, to the monarch, to the king, but that, uh, that cook doesn't pay attention to what the king eats or doesn't eat, and they don't, uh, they don't pay attention to um, the effects that the food has. They just, they just concentrate on the cooking and then, uh, then offer it up and then don't look at the results. So such a, a cook as that will not be particularly you know, honored or rewarded. 
uh, and won't be particularly admired. The second kind of cook, who is, uh, say, one who has uh, got a, a greater quality of mindfulness and attentiveness, and not only do they take a lot of care to prepare the food, but then when they've given the food to the king, they pay, they pay attention to, well, what did his majesty eat today? You know, what did he, what did he leave? What were the things that, um, that had a good effect? You know, that uh, he might have liked it a lot, but maybe he was burping <laughs> and, uh, and had lots of wind for the rest of the day. Okay, pay attention to that. Um, so that the, the cook who is wise and astute and attentive is the one who notices what is pleasing to the, the, the person that the, is receiving the food and also the effects that, that the food has. And so, so then the Buddha says, you know, such a cook who is wise and attentive and, and thoughtful, then they will be rewarded. The, 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 uh, the king will then praise them, honor them, and give them, a, uh, give them a, a, a rewards of, of gold and silver. So that that... Uh, that quality of not just putting our attention on the task in hand, but considering the the broader effects uh, and the uh, the whole picture, is say that I would say the most important thing to understand. Because when you look at a definition of mindfulness and it says you know, paying attention in the present moment, or paying attention non-judgmentally, it uh, it still doesn't bring in that that extra quality of being circumspect or, or looking at the the whole picture. So when we use the word mindfulness, and we we uh, we recognize this is a, a a most important teaching within the the Pali uh, the Pali canon and the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness. And uh, one of Lumpur Sumedho's favorite subjects, he would often quote the uh, the verses of the, of the Dhammapada, saying, "Mindfulness is the path to the deathless." Even one of his most well known and appreciated books, "Mindfulness: The Path to the Deathless." Mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. So you hear Lumpur Sumedho uh, uh, quoting those words very, very often. It's a kind of theme for Amaravati. And uh, when Amaravati was opened and we printed this book, that was the title of the book, Mindfulness, path, The Path to the Deathless. Copies available in the lobby. <laughs> Help yourself on your departure. So that, but the mindfulness that's being talked about in that is not just the, the act of, of paying attention, because that in itself is not something that is liberating. You know, that, that, and as, as Lumpur Sumedha would often say, you know, a squirrel is mindful, jumping from branch to branch. You know, when you see the monastery cat hunting for, for mice in the, in the hedgerows, you can see that that cat is very, very attentive. <laughs> yeah. But you can't say that it's the, the kind of mindfulness of a cat hunting a mouse in the hedgerow is a, a mindfulness that's liberating. It'll, it'll get the, the cat uh, its lunch, <laughs> but it's also not taking into account the feelings of the mouse. Right? So certainly there are that quality of, of attention, of, say, being uh, alert to the circumstances of the present and, uh, and keeping a, a, a close watch at the ta on the task in hand is an important element of it. But the mindfulness that is the, that is the path to the deathless, the mindfulness that is uh, comprehensive, has other elements to it. Well, in this respect, the analogy that Ajahn Chah used to use, uh, he would say that the that mindfulness is like the hand, sati, uh, that's the, the Pali word for, that we've translated as mindfulness, Sati is like the hand, so it's just the the the, the thing that picks uh, picks objects up, 
So mindfulness on its own is just a, a simple, almost mechanical function. And so that that would apply whether you're a, a cat hunting a mouse or a squirrel jumping through the branches or just the, the act of picking something up. So you can use sati to um, to pick up a glass. You can use it to hack a hole in your <laughs> your foot. <laughs> or you can you can be a you know, a, a, mili a, a sniper in the in the army with that kind of sati, uh, being attentive to the task in hand. But uh, so this is uh, uh, the hand on its own is not much use if it hasn't got an arm to steer it in various directions. So the arm is like uh, the uh, the element of our, our being which is, say, connecting the hand to a, a broader range of possibilities. The um, Pali term sampajanya is then uh, used in this respect. You say the, the, the hand is like sati, the arm is sampajanya. So that means the, the quality of um, uh, say wise reflection, what you can call circumspection, meaning looking around, looking at the whole picture. So when there is a sati and sampajanya, uh, then there is, uh, say, an attention to the object, but you're also paying attention to the context. You're, you're looking at the, um, the situation. So then in that, uh, in that respect, you'd be considering, well, uh, is this, uh, is this going to be helpful? You know, is my foot in the way of, of the knife? <laughs> what does the mouse think about being caught? You know, uh, the, the whole picture of, uh, say, the, the task that we're, we're following, the action that's going on, the thing that we're experiencing, we're looking at the time, the place, the situation, who else is involved, what our own con uh, considerations uh, need to be in order to to harmonize with the situation at a whole, as a whole, so that the uh, uh, the two together, sati and sampajanya, make a, a very different uh, a, a very different quality than just the act of paying attention. So there is a within that that quality of of uh, sampajanya. Uh, that wise reflection or, or a comprehensive uh, awareness, then there's a, a, a moral element. We're considering the uh, the effects. Well, uh, I might uh, I mo notice myself saying this. I'm having a conversation, but the uh, sampajanya element will be considering. Okay, well, is that true? What I'm saying is, um, am I just making up something for the sake of a good story? Uh, am I uh, say? Uh, irritated by the, this this person? Am I trying to please this person? Am I hoping to get something from this person? You know, what are the other elements that are playing into this conversation? Um, it, the uh, the whole of the picture is being brought into that. But if we pursue this, the, the, the physiological analogy, so our hand and an arm on their own are not much use without being connected to a body, right? Yeah, an arm and a hand, well, they can sit there, they can, they can be a kind of medical specimen, <laughs> but if the, ha the, uh, the arm and the hand are not connected to a living body, then that, uh, that arm and the hand have no life in them. They have no capacity to really uh, be, uh, say, uh, directed or moved. And so uh, Ajahn Chah would say that the, the body that they are connected to uh, represents the quality of, of wisdom, panya. So that that is the, uh, the very, um, say, the, the center of what you can call the life source. And that's why in the Buddha's statement, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. 
the heedless are as if dead already. So when he says the mindful never die, it doesn't mean that if you're mindful, you, your body will live forever. <laughs> what it means is that uh, that when there is real mindfulness, when we're, we're, there's a there's a, a, a an embodiment of the quasim, the quality of wisdom, and that wisdom recognizes that the body is not self. The, the, this uh, this living form is not who and what we are. It's not uh, it's not a self. It's not owned by a self. It's just a a function of nature. So the quality of wisdom is then bringing into into focus the uh, the fact that um, that even if we're paying attention, even if we're paying attention to the time, the place, the situation, and the whole context of, of an action or an engagement or an experience, uh, it's looking at the very, um, uh, say, the experiential quality. You're looking at the very fabric of experience. So that not only, so, so to give an example uh, of this, say, not only am I paying attention to the words I'm using, not only am I paying attention to the fact that it's uh, between 20 and 25 past two and uh, I've only just really started the talk <laughs> and that uh, I've already been talking a lot already and I've only covered a couple of the themes I was thinking to talk about <laughs> but also the the panya so that would be the sati and sampajanya the mindfulness and the clear comprehension or the um, the more comprehensive awareness but the panya element the wisdom element is to recognize that what we're experiencing in this moment is sight sound smell taste touch thought arising and passing away in, in consciousness. It's aware of the fact that this moment is being fabricated uh, in my mind through what's seen, what's heard, what's, what's thought, uh, what's uh, remembered and recognized. Isn't that the case? I close my eyes, the visual world vanishes. I open my eyes, it comes back again. So in this moment, the world that we experience is actually the world uh, as represented by our mind, you know, that uh, the, we don't experience the same world. We all experience the world that is pieced together through our own our own consciousness. If somebody here is is colorblind, uh, they won't see the the reds and the greens as different colors. They all seem to be the the if they're red red green colorblind, uh, they'll just uh, see them as a different tones, but uh, quite possibly as a. a, a a, a comparable color. If you're not colorblind, then you can see, you know, the reds look red and the greens look green. So that the world that we experience is the world that is formed through our, our perceptions. So when there is a a, 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 a a quality of mindfulness that is fully connected to to dhamma, to reality, then there is that that element also of seeing not just that the time, the place, and the situation, but also that this is a flow of experience arising and passing away in consciousness. And it doesn't have an owner, it's not who and what we are, it's not something that is, is uh, say, stable or, or solid, uh, substantial in any way. And the, the Buddha's main teaching on, on mindfulness is called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, this is probably the most important meditation teaching that you find in the Pali scriptures. And so and it, it informs pretty much uh, the, all of uh, Buddhist meditation. And in that sutta, I mean, you could probably talk for... Well, actually, the, the Buddha said of Satipatthana, he said, if I, if I started speaking now and I only stopped speaking in order to, to, uh, to, uh, to take food 
uh, once a day and to to rest the body uh, one, uh, once a day for a few hours and I spoke continually until you had to carry my body around on a on a, uh, a stretcher yeah until uh, until my last breath I would not exhaust the number of things that could be said about Satipatthana it's a fairly emphatic statement <laughs> so don't worry I will be finishing at three so <laughs> but uh, it's a very it's a very all-encompassing subject and it was uh, divided into mindfulness of the body mindfulness of feelings a mindfulness of uh, moods and mental states and then mindfulness of the fabric of experience itself mindfulness of, of how uh, the, the process of experiencing works so uh, the uh, these are the four foundations of mindfulness the uh, um, the uh, Kayanu, uh, the the kayanupasana, the investigation of the body. Vedanaanupasana, the investigation of feeling. Chittanupasana, the investigation of of mind and moods and mind states. And Dhammaanupasana, the uh, uh, investigation of uh, mental phenomena and also the the, the uh, seeing things in terms of reality, seeing things in terms of the quality of rise and fall, and in terms of of dhamma itself. Now, in terms of developing this, uh, say that if we take mindfulness to be this this quality that possesses, uh, or what the most useful kind of mindfulness is, this more comprehensive, or you can say holistic mindfulness, to borrow a, a phrase from Ajahn Sajito, uh, or holistic awareness, I think is his favourite phrase. But uh, this kind of holistic mindfulness that includes sampajanya, includes clear comprehension and reflection, and includes wisdom. Um, then that we need to address both the physical and the mental side of it. In another of the Buddha's suttas, a very telling sutta um, uh, called The Six Animals, the Buddha gave this image. He said, if you took a, a, a crocodile, and those of you who are into animal, uh, animal rights, please, this is just a symbol. This is just a <laughs> symbolic story. So if you think this is the, the encouraging abuse of animals, don't... Uh, yeah. I'm not suggesting any of you try to carry this out, but if you take a crocodile, a dog, a jackal, a snake, a bird, and a monkey. So if you take these six animals and you tie them all, you put a, you, you put a, a collar around their necks and then you tie them together. So you know, what will happen is that the animal that's strongest will then drag the others uh, down into its own favored element. So the crocodile wants to get back into the river, the monkey wants to go back to the forest, the dog wants to go into the village, the jackal wants to go to the burning ground, uh, the bird wants to fly up into the air, and the snake wants to go into its burrow in the ground. And so whichever animal is strongest at any one particular time, it'll drag the others off. Yeah. And so then you get this, this marvelously kind of messy, tangled and confusing image. So well, this is like our six senses, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. And just... Uh, and this is the way that our, our senses work, is that we get distracted by something that we see, and something that we taste, something that we hear, something that we feel in the body, or a thought in the mind. And, and then, just like the crocodile drags them off, <laughs> drags the whole bundle off in one direction, and then the crocodile gets tired, and then the, and the, uh, the dog goes uh, hurtling off to the village, drags it that way, and then, and then the monkey kind of climbs up the tree. And it's a, a, t a confused and tangled mess. So this is uh, the, the image that the Buddha uses about, this is how our, our life is uh, when we are living unmindfully. Uh, that if we're just dominated by the reactions of the senses about what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch, just pulled around, uh, 
by the attractions and aversions through the different sense doors, then we just end up in a, a confused and tangled mess, just like if you imagine the six animals. Like, <laughs> it's a, a, a very um, sort of complicated and uncomfortable and contentious. You can imagine that they're, they're, not, all, they're not all going to be very friendly with being dragged around by the others. He said, however, if you take a, a good solid wooden pillar and you drive the pillar into the ground, and then all the different animals are then tied to that solid pillar, then yeah, each one will, will tug against its rope for a while, but then because it won't be able to get anywhere, then it'll quieten down and they'll all settle down in their own way, and you won't get such a confused and tangled mess. He said, this, uh, in this instance, that pillar driven firmly into the ground to which the senses are tied is mindfulness directed towards the body. So it's a very wonderful image. So if there is uh, mindfulness of the body, kayanupasana, that investigation and attention to the body, then this is like a, a powerful coordinating stabilizing principle so that we are not getting so dragged around by our thoughts and feelings and perceptions and ideas. So that's the, the simile of the, of the six animals. So in the, the forest tradition of meditation, the mindfulness of the body is something that is, is given a, a great deal of attention and particularly, uh, it's particularly helpful for those of us who live in the West and grown up through the Western education system where we, we tend to live in our heads very much. It's a, and also life is quite comfortable here in Britain. It's very mild climate, nothing is very extreme. You know, if the temperature goes above 80, we think, oh, you know, it's, a, it's a sort of, uh, we call it a heat wave. <laughs> if it goes down below zero, we think it's a, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, an, Arctic, you know, an Arctic winter. But it's generally pretty mild, and pretty easy, pretty comfortable. So because of that comfort and e uh, easiness and also because of uh, tending to live in our thoughts and our ideas, we can forget about the presence of the body altogether. We, just, we live in our heads and uh, the body is just like this kind of appendage that hangs off the bottom of our neck. You know, stops our chin from scraping along the ground so that it just, we don't really think about it or just we, we only are concerned about it when we, we, want, we, we hope it looks attractive or that it's able to, to be uh, able to get us where we want to go and um, be free from, from pain. But most of the time we would tend to ignore it and live in our mental world. So uh, instead of that, to, to bring attention into the body and to recognize the presence of the body, to spread loving kindness through the body, to, uh, to be aware of the flow of feelings and perceptions, the movement of the body is a tremendously powerful way of bringing attention into the present. Because as we know, our, our thoughts can wander off into creations about the past creations about the future, but the body never wanders off into the past or the future, right? It's guaranteed to be here all the time. Have any of you been lost in a distracted thought, and then when you came back, your body was missing? <laughs> Put your, any, any, any hands up? Yeah, I, I suspect, I'm not, I'm not a mind reader, but I suspect that none of us have ever had that experience, that your body is always faithfully waiting you know, it's always there to come back to, like the most, most reliable, most faithful friend, most uh, dependable companion, that the body's always there to come back to, because it only dwells in the present moment. So if we want to establish mindfulness, 
and a, a comprehensive and holistic mindfulness, one of the key ways of doing that is to pay attention to the body and to keep the body in perspective. So then the, the bringing mindfulness to the, the mental realm, to our, our feelings, to our thoughts and emotions, moods, uh, all the, the, um, the mental dimension, you know, that's a, you know, a whole other picture, but it's also important of the, the four foundations of mindfulness. The, um, the body actually gets more page space than the other three, uh, but is the, the other three is, uh, uh, is uh, addressing the, the mental realm, the world of, of our uh, physical, uh, our sensations, uh, our, uh, our thoughts, our moods, our ideas, you know, our plans and, and intentions. And again, the, the Buddha points to the centrality of, uh, of mindfulness in various ways, in, particularly in, in terms of the mental realm and, and spiritual faculties. There's a, a very interesting sutta where the Buddha uses the analogy, the simile of, of fire. And um, uh, in terms of developing you know, wholesome mental qualities, the, developing the seven factors of enlightenment, I expect some of you, many of you might be familiar with these, but th these are the seven qualities of the enlightened mind. So when the mind is completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion, when the mind is completely, uh, say, liberated, then it's said to have seven different qualities. And these are, the first one is mindfulness, sati. Then the, the next one is dhamma vijaya, the, which is a quality of intelligence or investigation of reality, like the mind that recognizes patterns and sees the way that things work. So dhamma vijaya, the, the mind that's reflective, investigative, our, our innate intelligence. Uh, and then uh, <clears throat> the next one is energy, virya. Then uh, piti or joy, rapture. So uh, these are all uh, aspects of the, the awakened mind. The, the mind that is liberated and awake, the mind that is, is completely uh, fulfilled, is, uh, is mindful, is, uh, is, is intelligent, is in, in investigative, is energetic, and, and possesses rapture. It also has tranquility, pasadi. It's tranquil, it's peaceful. Um, it's concentrated, there is samadhi, and then also equanimous. So of these seven factors, you, uh, they, they all work together in a, uh, in a balanced way. But three of them are arousing or energizing. So the, the uh, quality of investigation, dhamma vijaya, the quality of um, energy itself, virya, and rapture, these are sort of the brightening, invigorating, uh, and arousing qualities of, of mind. And then three are calming or soothing, so that the quality of tranquility, then uh, 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 of concentration and of, equ and of equanimity, these are all pacifying, calming, and uh, uh, tranquil, uh, tranquility-inducing uh, elements. So in this analogy of fire, the Buddha says, when you, if you are looking at the mind, and you see that the mind is, say, um, dull and sleepy, then you don't need to emphasize the uh, the the tranquil and uh, calming you're already you're already calm enough and so if the mind is, is sleepy and dull then it's helpful to emphasize and strengthen the uh, arousing qualities of mind so just as if you're building a fire and the fire is sort of there's hardly any flames it's very smoky it's sort of smoldering if you put on wet leaves and wet grass it'll only make the the, the fire smolder and smoke even more it might even put it out instead 
uh, you want to uh, bring in and emphasize the rousing qualities to, to put on some dry kindling to uh, to put on dry grass and and, uh, and dry branches and that'll help the fire to, to catch and to the flames to grow up so that uh, you uh, if you see the mind is dull then you you use uh, investigation you use uh, virya and use uh, the quality of rapture you bring in those and and consciously rouse those elements if however your fi uh, your fire is not smoldering but is actually roaring away um, that you uh, uh, and the mind is very bright and uh, and alert and, and busy then you don't need more arousal you're already plenty uh, uh, plenty aroused so just like if you've got a fire that's already burning strongly you don't want to add on extra dry grass and dry leaves and 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 dry branches because that'll only uh, make the fire blaze even higher and get out of control so rather you put on some uh, throw on some earth or some some wet leaves and some wet grass and it'll help to damp it down and calm it so similarly if the mind is very agitated and busy and and, uh, and um, aroused then we incline towards the the, the peaceful the tranquilizing the, the the calming and so we emphasize the qualities of of uh, pasadi of, of uh, tranquility of samadhi concentration and upeka equanimity said uh, the quality of mindfulness is always applicable so that whatever the situation whether the mind is very bright or very dull where it's very busy or, or very quiet mindfulness is always is always applicable so this is where i was saying you can quote the buddha saying more is better it says like salt uh, improves the flavor of every curry and then those of you who might say salt but that's bad for heart disease <laughs> again this is an analogy so that the Buddha says, the Buddha said like just as salt improves the flavor of every curry or a good prime minister benefits every nation uh, mindfulness always improves every situation so that's a very uh, helpful way of thinking of it so that a good uh, a good um, politician <laughs> a good leader a good uh, government minister will benefit everybody and so mindfulness is like a a good coordinating minister within But when we consider uh, mindfulness like this and uh, to see these different qualities that there that um, it's also helpful to you can't just say oh I will be mindful <laughs> oh, this sounds like great stuff yes I will develop mindfulness I, I really like this idea of mindfulness and wisdom I'll have some of that thank you very much you know it doesn't work quite that way because we have habits we have habits of mind like selfishness uh, uh, irritation greed um, jealousy fear uh, we have a, a lot of obstacles and ob obstructions that the mind is habituated to and so that it's important to recognize what those obstacles are because you can't just create wholesome qualities by wishful thinking you can't just sort of look up mindfulness in the in the book and, and or send out an order on the, uh, to um, eBay or Amazon you know that uh, you can't just get it delivered uh, you have to, to work with the situation that you have so when we look at our minds and we see that yes there there is aversion or there is there is greed there is um, agitation there's restlessness or there's dullness and the mind is filled with doubt then we need to be ha to have ways and means to, to work with those those qualities and so that the, the Buddha talked about 
these when we try to train the mind to get to know these these uh, what they're called the nivarana or hindrances and to get to know them to understand them to learn from them and to uh, to say uh, grow out of them or to to get beyond them so the um, these these hindrances the nivarana particularly uh, sense desire uh, aversion uh, restlessness dullness uh, uh, and doubt these are all things that we we need to get to, to know but it's all it's important to recognize also that these are not kind of the enemy or a kind of in, an infection or something that's wrong with us this is this is the the kind of things that we we learn from and so that when we are say given to uh, to doubt if the mind is very prone to doubting that can help us to uh, develop uh, through working with doubt and looking at doubt and how to get beyond that that can help us to develop a great deal of, of clarity and a great deal of wisdom if we are if we are subject to a lot of dullness the mind gets very cloudy and, and thick and heavy-headed that can help us to by working with that we can learn how to arouse energy if the mind is very busy and agitated and restless then this is the way that we learn how to uh, to be calm to be focused to be tranquil and so on yeah when uh, people would come to Ajahn Chah and say yeah say Lumpur it's it's amazing yeah you're you're so wise you're so clever you you seem to have an answer for everybody's question whatever problem people come to to see you with you always seem to have an answer you know regardless of uh, what the problem might be whether it's a, a meditation issue whether it's a kind of family conflict whether it's how to run the province whether it's how to deal with corruption in the police department you know uh, you know you seem to have an answer for everything you, you must have studied an awful lot of scriptures you must have learned the abhidharma back to front to really know how to to deal with all of this and he said no no i've never studied the abhidharma and uh, you know, i don't really look at the the suttas very much but uh, the reason if i have any wisdom is because i had a huge amount of defilements it's, but that's how if i've developed any wisdom it's because my, i i had a, a lot of anger a lot of greed you know i was very restless and filled with doubt all the time so that uh, you know it's because I've had such a, a lot of obstacles and difficulties and had to work with them that's how I've developed wisdom and sometimes people would be very shocked they can, oh, because they assume that some great holy being like Ajahn Chah sort of popped out of a lotus bud you know and was born and then he would tell a few stories about yeah, his greed problems and his sort of obsessive uh, uh, attachment to particular kinds of food and how when he was a young monk he would hallucinate bananas or Chinese noodles and he was so addicted to Chinese noodles that when he uh, when he started the Wat Bapong monastery he actually banned them from ever being cooked there that uh, that the, he was because so, he uh, he was so attached to them that as soon as the this particular kind of noodles would be offered he could see his mindfulness just disappearing out the monastery gate so and it's still a custom there now one day a year they have those kind of noodles as a special noodle day in memory of the great master so uh, you know it was it's when we we consider the things that get in the way of mindfulness it's actually we develop mindfulness through learning how to work with them and rather than than thinking of them as some kind of unwanted intruder this is actually the means whereby we we develop skill and understanding In meditation, in particular, um, <clears throat> then the uh, learning to see how the mind works and watching the mind get pulled away down um, the tracks of 
um, getting irritated by something, down the track of aversion or down the track of desire, you know, getting caught up in wanting something, getting caught in restlessness or, or dullness. Uh, your meditation, uh, say formal meditation, is one of the, the best tools. Uh, obviously, I'm completely biased in this. <laughs> I freely admit uh, this is a, a, a very um, uh, biased and slanted perception. But I would say the, point, the reason why meditation is so helpful for uh, a, a life that is, uh, is peaceful and enjoyable and uh, free from conflict is because we can get to know the habits of mind and to, to work with them. So when we sit down uh, and do sitting meditation or walking meditation or spend time on a retreat, then we can get a, a close look at how the mind is working. And uh, in this respect, it's interesting that there was another sutta where the, the Buddha talks about his own practice before his enlightenment. This is a sutta number 20 in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called the two kinds of thinking. And the Buddha describes this very, very simple uh, meditation method that he used, or a, or a principle of meditation. And he said, so I would uh, sit down to, to practice meditation, and I would divide my thoughts into two categories. Uh, if my thoughts were uh, directed towards uh, agitation, towards selfishness, towards uh, harmfulness, then I would uh, make the effort to, to recognize that uh, unskillfulness, that unwholesomeness, and to incline my mind away from that. Or if my mind was inclined towards kindness, towards wisdom, towards clarity, towards peacefulness, then I would consciously uh, steer my mind in that direction. So he was just basically categorizing his, his thoughts into these two, uh, these two uh, different uh, uh, boxes. And that uh, it, it's a very simple method just to see, okay, this is unwholesome, therefore make the effort to drop it. This is wholesome, okay, make the effort to, to keep it alive, to, to stoke it and support it. So th this kind of meditation, uh, it, it can, or this way of approaching meditation, uh, can be extremely helpful. So that whether the mind is, say, getting caught up in, in aversion, uh, fear or irritation or desire, just to be able to recognize, okay, well, this isn't very helpful. <laughs> this is a, a harmful train of thought. This is destructive to me and, uh, and harmful to... Uh, towards others, therefore incline away from it, let go of it, drop it. Or if we see any other way, oh, this is helpful, this is beneficial, this is something beautiful and noble, okay, keep this alive, sustain it, maintain it. So in a way, this is a, what we would call cognitive therapy nowadays, or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, M, uh, not MBSR, it's uh, MBCT, <laughs> one of those... Uh, very common phrases used nowadays, MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that is what the Buddha is describing. Or I think maybe the MBCT people hatched it <laughs> from, uh, from reading the, these Buddhist teachings, uh, and I'm pretty sure they did. But that's what, you, that's what one is doing. You're keeping track of your thoughts and recognizing, okay, well, this is harmful. If I keep feeding this, it's going to stay alive. So let's just stop feeding this and let it fade away. Oh, this is helpful, this is good, okay, keep this alive, feed it, keep it going, and, and support that. And so that this is a, a very simple and basic way of, of uh, cultivating the, the, the good and uh, letting go of the, the harmful. Uh, just uh, earlier this year, in, in May, I was at a conference in Rome on mindfulness, which was uh, um, organized by a, a group of, of academics at the Sapienza University in, in Rome, and uh, 
the the keynote speakers were people like John Kabat-Zinn of the um, who founded the mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, trainings and and practice, and um, uh, Mark Williams from Oxford, the, who runs the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and um, so they were, I was right in the thick. They're all, almost all academics or clinicians, um, uh, educationalists. Uh, I was the only monk there for the whole thing. <laughs> but it was interesting insofar as that they, uh, up until now, there was a very strong effort to, to divorce the MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and those related things like MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, to, to separate it out from any kind of religious context. So when these programs and courses are taught, Buddhism is not mentioned, it's, kind of, it's non-religious. And particularly because it was hatched in America, which has got a very fanatical uh, fundamentalist Christian block. <laughs> like, uh, almost half of Americans uh, believe that the words of the Bible are uh, literally true, that the world was created a few thousand years ago. <laughs> That's half of, of you know, 250 million people in America. It's, I, I lived there for nearly 20 years, so uh, it's, it's strange but true. <laughs> so they trimmed out all of the, the religious language so that the, those teachings could be acceptable and, and, and useful to, uh, to all religious forms. But it was interesting, in this conference in Rome, they actually sort of came out of the closet for the first time. And the title for the conference was Mindfulness and the Dharma. And they asked me to give the very first talk. Well, actually, they, they invited me to give the, the, uh, the keynote on the first night of the conference. And they, I think they had slightly cold feet or coolish feet. So they, they bumped me to the pre-conference, <laughs> so the keynote pre-conference speech. So they didn't quite get the monk as sort of giving the, the, the main talk on the first evening, which was John Kabat-Zinn. But they got me the night before. <laughs> so most of the people at the conference were there. But anyway, suffice to say, I was very impressed. They were trying to consciously acknowledge the, the Buddhist sources and the, um, the, the, the history and, and the background to, to those trainings. Because they, the, the fact is they are incredibly helpful and that they had a big impact, in, not just in the, um, in the sort of meditational world, but in terms of uh, uh, mental health, physical health, in terms of education. And it was also intriguing to me um, to learn at that conference that one of the reasons why mindfulness is now the sort of word du jour, uh, that you're kind of seeing that it everywhere is the kind of the panacea that's going to fix everything. Uh, although actually it's more sort of mindfulness and compassion. Is com compassion is getting woven in there now as well. That that's the sort of mindfulness with compassion is now the, this year's mot du jour. <laughs> but... Uh, it was very fascinating to hear the story of how that, how that came about. And it was really because of the practical effectiveness of mindfulness meditation. And it was a group of, uh, and they showed up, because they were all scientists, there's lots of graphs and statistics around. It was a very, one particularly impressive graph was, graph was the, uh, the number of papers, academic papers on mindfulness published per year from when John Kabat-Zinn had started his program up to the present. And it goes in a, a kind of asymptotic curve like this. There's, it sort of goes along in a, a slow, very slow, steady climb, and then it suddenly kicks up and it's, it's increasing, so more than doubling every year now. And the, 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 uh, the, the turning point, the place where it really started to launch, was in 2007. And that was the year that uh, Mark Williams from Oxford, John Teasdale from Cambridge, and Zindel Siegel from the 
University of Toronto, published a paper on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression. Now, up until this point, depression was the most debilitating illness around the world. More work days per year are lost around the world in all countries uh, for depression, more than eye injury or ear injury, heart disease, any other kind of, of, of medical difficulty, more than double of the numbers of days lost per year all, uh, all around the globe are through depression rather than any other kind of illness or injury. And so up until that point, up until 2007, no treatment of depression. I'm sure there's going to be some psychotherapists and psychologists, psychiatrists here who will contradict me, but <laughs> the statistic I was told was that up until that point, no therapy, uh, medical treatment or um, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis um, of any kind uh, had more, uh, had a, a better than 10% than um, effect on, on depression, which is to say, if you have had an episode of depression, you're 90 to, 99, you're 90 to 95 percent likely for that uh, to have another experience, another uh, episode of depression, right? So if you had, if you've had a, an episode of depression for several months, then uh, if, if that has abated, you're nine, whatever the treatment is, whether it's therapy or medication or whatever, you're 90 to 95 percent uh, likely for to, ha to have another episode of depression. Well, regardless of the treatment everywhere in the world, nobody had got it better than having a 10% effect. With this um, program that was launched by um, Mark Williams and the others, uh, they got that down to 50%. So like it was, if you had an episode of depression, uh, it was, you were only 50% likely to have it come back. So this was like, um, five times as effective as any other kind of treatment anywhere in the world, right? So this was uh, uh, like a bomb going off in the, in the field of, of uh, treatment for depression. And uh, people thought, well, this must be a mistake. They fixed the statistics. Their, their method must have been all kinds of, you know, have all kinds of flaws in it. This can't be right because no one has ever achieved this kind of a result. Um, but, you know, they were sort of from Oxford and Cambridge and... Uh, and uh, reputable universities, and there was a, and there were reliable scientists, and so they ran the study again. The first one was done in Britain. The second one was done in the in the USA. Completely different set of of, uh, of subjects, different uh, different people, and they got exactly the same result. You know, more uh, fifty percent uh, remission rate rather than than a, a, ten, a five or a ten percent uh, remission rate. So uh, at that point, <laughs> interest in mindfulness. <laughs> went off the charts, or is currently going off the charts. And that's why we see the, the word everywhere nowadays, because people started to think, well, what is this? You know, how do you do this? And uh, so one of, the, one of the issues why I thought this would be a good theme is that one of the problems is that the kind of mindfulness that's being talked about is this kind of very limited view of just sort of paying attention, or say, concentrating on a task, or uh, and a bit more helpfully, learning to watch your thoughts and not follow the harmful ones and to support the wholesome ones. But it's not a mindfulness that is, that is particularly all-inclusive. And so one of the reasons they asked me to give a talk at the conference was to, say, create a, a, a clearer picture. So my own pet theory is that, say, as I said, you know, compassion has now come into the picture. So it's not just uh, mindfulness. It's now mindfulness and compassion. My, my pocket theory is that within a couple of years, uh, morality will come in. It'll be the kind of revolutionary new discovery <laughs> that if you stop telling lies to people, you'll be a lot more free of anxiety. You know, if you don't cheat on your taxes 
or you don't cheat on your partner, you know, you're, uh, that uh, you'll actually feel a lot more at home in your own body and you'll feel more comfortable in your life. I think there'll be some kind of um, revolutionary discovery, like, wow, Sila, amazing, incredible, fantastic, you know, whoever thought. It'd be called behavior therapy. Uh, this is my pet theory. I haven't, I haven't put it into print yet. <laughs> but I strongly suspect because the, uh, when you have it's not just sati and mindfulness, but sati sampajanya, then you do think about what the mouse is feeling. You don't just sort of uh, pay attention to your action. You sort of carefully, you mindfully fill out your tax forms with false, <laughs> false numbers. You know, you're, you're recognizing. Well, this is this is not true. You know, I'm, I'm cheating here. I'm trying to get away with something. And when you are you are lying or you're cheating, you're recognizing, ow, that that hurts. I feel a tension inside me, and that. If if you're just paying attention in a limited way, you're you're like with my the knife and my foot. Yes, you know you're you're paying attention, but <laughs> the damage is is a uh, uh, is potential and became actual. And so similarly, when we are um, really developing mindfulness, it, it includes it includes morality, it includes that sense of of um, our social conscience. It includes. Uh, a sense of uh, of our relationship to others, so that I would say you can't actually be a mindful sniper. <laughs> you know, you can't mindfully cheat on your uh, taxes or, or mindfully uh, flirt with somebody who isn't your spouse. <laughs> that uh, it's that they are antithetical. You can't. You can pay attention to that act, <laughs> but you can't be fully mindful. And that when the more that mindfulness is connected with that uh, say a breadth of a vision and the quality of wisdom, then there is a um, a natural say uh, inclusion of the the moral dimension, and and not as something that's imposed or like oh you know I I'm forbidden I'm forbidden to do this by law therefore I shouldn't do it, but more there's that recognition of of the effect that that has on your own jitta your own heart that. When you are, you've said something that's that's hurtful to someone, you you recognise, oh, yeah, uh, that's that's painful here too. When you you tell a lie or you you take advantage of someone, uh, you know that uh, uh, you or you you kill something that uh, you you are recognising. Well, why is my life more important than the green fly? You know, what? How could that be? How could that possibly be? And then that that is recognised, that that's uh, acknowledged. So maybe the last thing to say about about compassion and the last teaching that uh, I thought I'd share with you all today is one that the the Buddha used to talk about the the uh, application of of mindfulness, the the foundations of mindfulness, and how that relates to our our sense of our place in the world and helping others. And it is called the the uh, the. Um, the Siddhaka Sutta, it was given in a town called Siddhaka, and it's called the Acrobats. And so it, the Buddha's telling the story of, there, there was some, some street acrobats, and maybe some of you have been in India, or you, maybe you've seen this uh, uh, when, you, when you're when you living there, or when you've been traveling there, but you get kind of street acrobatic troops uh, happening in, in India, and this uh, there's a particular uh, acrobatic uh, maneuver, or... or um, uh, say tradition whereby uh, a person would have a, a pole, a, you know, a straight pole, and then a small child or a small person would climb up the pole and then do various sort of acrobatic tricks you know, uh, uh, on top of the pole and around the pole while the person down below is is balancing it. 
And those of you who've seen a novel by Rohit Mystery called A Fine Balance, there's a, on, the, on the front of the, the, uh, the cover of the book, he's got a, one, it's, a, it's the same kind of acrobat with a, a bamboo pole on the end of his finger. And, uh, the, um, and there's a, um, in this, the analogy of the Buddha, the, he said, there's this acrobat and the, the acrobat's little daughter, who's the helper. And uh, the, the dad says, um, and the, the name of the, the daughter is, uh, is Meda, uh, Meda, Lanki, Meda Lantika, which means frying pan. So her, na her name is Frying Pan, for some peculiar reason. <laughs> Why she's called Frying Pan is not revealed, but that's her name. He says, well, Frying Pan, you know, uh, if, you, if you climb up the pole and you do your tricks well, um, then you know, I'll look out for you and you look out for me, and that way you'll be able to get up the pole and do your tricks, and then we'll be, able, we'll be able to impress the public and get a good fee, and you'll be able to come down safely from the pole. And she said, no, Dad, that's not right. No, uh, I, uh, I'll pay attention to my act, and you pay attention to yours. You know, I'll take care of my thing, you take care of your thing. <laughs> uh, and that's the way that I'll get up the pole and perform my tricks, and we'll get a good fee, and I'll get down safely from the pole. And then the Buddha said, you know, in this case, the little girl is correct, and her dad is wrong. <laughs> so this is how, by protecting ourselves, that's how we protect others. And by protecting others, uh, that's how we protect ourselves. So by how we protect ourselves. If you are, if you are um, paying attention to your own life, you're living mindfully, you're living uh, carefully, you're paying attention to the things that you do and the effects that you have uh, upon others, then that's the way that you, you act most harmoniously. If I'm spending my life worrying about you and trying to be compassionate towards you, but I'm not paying attention to my own, my own mind states, my own body, then like the little frying pan pointed out, no, no, dad, that's not right. <laughs> You, know, you should be paying attention to the balance, what you're doing, and I'll pay attention to what I'm doing. And that's how we both benefit. So that uh, th this is a, a very central principle. It's a short sutta, but it's a very central principle that you have in the Theravada Buddhist world, that rather than emphasizing compassionate action for others, the Buddha says the best way of being compassionate for others is to be as mindful as possible yourself. <laughs> and then the compassionate and, and attuned action will be a natural result of what you do, but your main attention is on your your body, your feelings, your perceptions, your ideas, and your your moods, and that that's the way that you stay in tune with things and you carry out the the work and the actions that you need to do in the most effective way. So, being mindful of Lada bringing out the hot drink onto the um, the counter there, I'll leave things at that point, and then we'll have a break for about twenty minutes, and then we can gather back together for some discussion and uh, questions. <laughs>